you have those times in your life where there are lines in the sand for not only memories, but also for growth and wisdom, should you live long enough to really learn the lessons from it. Back in Chicago, we're set for the introduction of the lineups, always a theatrical production here at Chicago Stadium. Let's it was game one of the 1991 NBA Finals. An entire season, if not the last decade of basketball, had all been building to this. Magic Johnson versus Michael Jordan. The game's two biggest stars finally facing off for all the chips, and it was going to be epic. But behind the scenes, another battle was brewing, far away from the cameras. One that was about a whole lot more than wins and losses. A day earlier, Craig Hodges, the sharpshooting point guard for the Chicago Bulls, had pulled aside these two superstars with a plan. A plan that, if they could pull it off, would set the sports world on fire. What if the Bulls and the Lakers just didn't play? That's right. What if they boycotted the first game of the series? Now the story that might never have surfaced if someone hadn't picked up his home video camera. We've all seen the pictures of Los Angeles police officers beating a man they had just pulled over. It was only three months since Rodney King's brutal beating at the hands of the LAPD. The city's police chief said today he will support criminal charges against some of the men. Here's ABC's Gary Shepard. The video of that moment turned the all-too-common occurrence of police brutality into a grotesquely viral highlight, played on the nightly news across the country. A massive scandal that spotlighted racial bias in policing in America, and a call to action for activists like Craig Hodges. Now he saw the moment to act. There's only two times in the season where your boycott means anything. That is All-Star Weekend and playoffs. And those are the only two times that you really have any measure of unified power that will put a dent in the owner's pocket. All Craig had to do was convince the game's two brightest stars to play ball, or not play ball in this case. We have practice before the first game, the day before. We live in the court. Magic is coming onto the court. It's a five minute conversation. Yo, man, we need to uh, boycott this first game, man. Because back in 1963, Jerry West and Elgin Baylor said they weren't gonna go play an all-star game. The owners made a decision and it was a union thereafter. So why can't we make a decision now? Let's boycott tomorrow night, brother. Hodge, nah, man, we can't do that. Neither one of them wanted to do it. Maybe I should have done it by myself. It might have bought some attention or it might not have. But in hindsight, that might have been a way to go. Ten days later, he and Jordan would become first-time world champions together. But that's not what Hodges remembers most about those heady days in the summer of 91. You know, when I look at MJ, one of the things that I learned is that to whom much is given, much is required. Why is our community looking the way it is where we have these two iconic figures who can play a major visible leadership role? That's all I'm saying. Craig Hodges would have a lot more to say before all was said and done. He may have felt alone in that moment of protest, but there was at least one other player of that era who was trying to make their voice heard. In previous episodes of this series, we've discussed players whose lives have been cut short. 
These two players didn't die, but within a few years of taking a stand, of refusing to just shut up and dribble, both would be driven out of the league, their careers killed, in part by a culture that wasn't ready to confront its racist past. I'm Adam McKay, and this is Death at the Wing. Tonight's episode, Racial Fault Lines, Blackballed Players, and Activism in the Age of Jordan. This is the story of Craig Hodges and Mahmoud Abdul-Raouf. When you make decisions for your company, you look for the no-brainers. If you have a lot of mailing to do, Stamps.com is the ultimate no-brainer. Use the Stamps.com mobile app to mail everything you need to keep your business running with up to 89% off USPS and UPS. Make the same no-brainer decision as over 1 million other businesses with Stamps.com. Use code PROGRAM for a special offer. That's Stamps.com, code PROGRAM. A long pass up to Baylor. In 1959, Elgin Baylor was still just a star rookie for the Minneapolis Lakers, racking up eye-popping stats and breaking out as one of the game's first African-American stars. Russell guarding Baylor, but Baylor made it. But during a trip to West Virginia for a game against the Cincinnati Royals, Baylor and his black teammates came face-to-face with the Jim Crow South in practice, if not law, when they entered the Kanawha Hotel lobby. The three colored boys will have to go somewhere else, the clerk said at the time, according to the Charleston Gazette Mail. This is a nice, respectable hotel. Furious, the team relocated, only to be denied service at a nearby restaurant. Elgin was forced to go to a grocery store and make himself a sandwich just to have something to eat. As he sat stewing over the incident, he decided enough was enough. The team wasn't allowed to stay together, they weren't gonna play together. He walked, boycotting the game and creating a media firestorm. We have to understand that basketball was very much at the professional level an urban sport. And so a lot of times when there were either exhibition matches in the South or barnstorming tours, which the NBA did to try to increase its territory, players um, encountered a racism that uh, for many of them was, was, was a first. This is David Zirin, sports editor at The Nation magazine and author of The Kaepernick Effect. Or they experienced a different kind of racism in the North than they experienced in the South on these barnstorming tours. So the gap between a lot of players' experiences and the realities of Jim Crow, I think produced a lot of radicalism in and of itself. This was the era of segregation and civil rights, of poll taxes and lynchings, of righteously angry Jim Brown and evil Jim Crow. Elgin's rookie season was the same year that the Bethel Baptist Church in Birmingham, Alabama was bombed by the KKK. Being political wasn't about good PR, it was about trying to survive to the next game. Elgin Baylor, Oscar Robertson, player after player from that era, were known for standing up and speaking out. There's Bill Russell at Dr. King's March on Washington. There's Lenny Wilkins being refused service and then refusing to leave. But thanks to all the old grainy black and white footage, 
We mostly see these players today as relics of an almost ancient era of basketball. Champions, sure. Record setters, winners, absolutely. But we never see what they truly had to endure just to rack up those amazing accomplishments. Bill Russell experienced a great deal of racism in Boston, first and foremost, uh, which he would, would speak out about often. He once said, I'm a Celtic, not a Boston Celtic. The history of activism in the NBA, in many ways, begins with a surprising team, the Boston Celtics. Just ask Jackie McMullen, longtime writer for the Boston Globe. The Celtics had the first African-American coach. They drafted the first American, African-American player in Chuck Cooper. So they, you know, Red Arbeck didn't care. He had the first black starting five. Bill Russell served as a player coach for three seasons in the mid-60s. First black coach in major professional sports and the first to win a championship. But as thanks for revolutionizing the sport, Russell faced an onslaught of hate, even if not especially from his hometown fans. There was simply nowhere to hide as a 6'10 black man in the predominantly white town of Boston. Bill Russell was a very strong, vocal, committed uh, person, very strong voice for social justice, someone to be admired for that. And uh, not everybody liked it. He was regularly called a coon or baboon or worse at the opening tip of games. Vandals broke into Bill Russell's home in Reading and smeared feces all over his walls. You would think a crime like that would draw the sympathy of authorities. But instead, the FBI opened a file on him, labeling him, quote, an arrogant Negro who won't sign autographs for white children. But Russell refused to be cowed. Even his winning ways were steeped in race. Russell realized early on that any sort of individual accolade would be belittled if it came from a black player. So he put all his effort into the one thing that couldn't be ignored, championships. And it worked to the tune of 11 NBA titles. And the Boston Celtics have done it again. Another jewel in that crown. So much of the game from those early days came from black players being forced to improvise on the fly as their white overlords tried to shut them down. Kareem Abdul-Jabbar, or Lou Alcindor as he was known then, led his UCLA Bruins to three consecutive titles between 1967 and 69. As a reward for his dominance, the NCAA banned dunking in the middle of his collegiate career. Yep, just got rid of it. Apparently, you couldn't have an African-American giant slamming it down on all those nice white boys and keep your fan base happy. But the ban backfired in the face of Alcindor's unique brilliance. Not only did he call it out for what it was, blatant racism, but he found a workaround, too. If he couldn't dunk, he'd just float in a picture-perfect skyhook, which soon became the most unstoppable move in basketball history. There's the hook. He got it. I mean, Kareem Abdul-Jabbar is in so many respects the link between activists in the 1960s and going into the 1980s. By the time Kareem made it to the NBA, he was already a divisive figure. Perhaps the greatest player the league had ever seen, but at the same time, one who wasn't afraid to speak his mind. And as a result, Kareem was branded sullen, angry, and un-American. He was a champion, but also something different, a reflection of the darkness that surrounded the 70s. 
Indeed, for Kareem, being a black star with a point of view meant wearing a target on his back. Kareem himself was said to be a target of assassination. And there were um, people from the FBI who would travel with the Milwaukee Bucks in the 1970s because of the concern that Kareem would, in fact, be assassinated. And I think this is something that isn't talked about enough. I mean, he's playing in stadiums that, you know, they didn't have metal detectors back then. Tickets were very cheap. They weren't prohibitive. I mean, his life was really um, in a state of, of threat, but he never talked about it to the press, really. Uh, it was never something that was discussed, and yet he was still able to thrive under these incredibly difficult circumstances. Kareem had once described himself as black rage personified, black power in the flesh. Not the most marketable slogan for the one audience the NBA cared about at that time, white fans. But in 1979, two players would arrive with all the charisma and athletic marvel of legends past, but without all the baggage. Greatest thing that happened for the NBA was the 1979 NCAA Finals with Magic and Bird. And that in itself, it, it became the ability for the league to foster and, and put this imagery out there of good versus evil, black versus white. Almost overnight, the popularity of the NBA skyrocketed. Players became superstars, superstars became icons. And somewhere along the way, in the eyes of mainstream culture at least, they started to transcend race itself. And of course, this was all sponsored by Gatorade. Sometimes I dream that he is me. If anyone had produced a commercial just 10 years earlier in which a bunch of white kids goofed around dreaming of being a black man, they would have lost their job. Hell, in some states, they might have even been arrested. But those days were over. Michael Jordan was the ultimate expression of this new athlete, fame personified, a role model, welcome in every living room. He was best friends with Bugs Bunny. Against a growing national furor over last weekend's police beating of an unarmed black motorist, all 14 officers involved will be disciplined. Three will face criminal charges. But here's the thing. Even though we weren't talking about race in the 80s, as ratings exploded and sneaker sales soared, it was always the unspoken undercurrent. The bruises, broken legs, and the scars from the stun gun which jolted him with 50,000 volt shocks. How long would the good times last before white America noticed that their favorite players were, you know, black? I was scared. I was scared. I was scared for my life. And then, just as the game was reaching its apex and everyone was getting rich beyond their wildest dreams, here comes Craig Hodges to remind them all. That's coming up after the break. Have you ever felt like escaping to your own desert island? Jane Gaskin did exactly that, trading in the family home to begin a new life in the tropics. But she soon discovers that paradise has its secrets. I'm Alice Levine, and this is The Price of Paradise, the island dream that ends in kidnap, corruption, and murder. Wish you were here? Follow The Price of Paradise now, wherever you listen to podcasts. Welcome to True Spies. 
The podcast that takes you deep inside the greatest secret missions of all time. Suddenly out of the dark disappeared Bin Laden. You'll meet the people who live life undercover. What do they know? What are their skills? And what would you do in their position? Vengeance felt good. Seeing these people pay for what they'd done felt righteous. True Spies from Spyscape Studios. Wherever you get your podcasts. Years before Craig Hodges made his name as a three-time champion of the NBA three-point contest, he was just a kid from the Chicago area, spending his free time handing out petitions, fighting against redlining, and fighting for voters' rights. Yeah, seriously, that's what he did. I mean, sure, Craig loved to hoop, but in his family, revolution came first. Back in the day, we wrote letters to our Congress people, to the mayor, you know, to the city council. His mother worked as a secretary for a local civil rights group, a freedom fighter from the get-go. The truth is that, you know, the principles of Dr. Martin Luther King were very near and dear to me. But by the time he reached Long Beach State in 1978, Hodge's life was defined by and large by one thing, basketball. That is, until one dark day changed everything. Ron was a a dear friend of mine, man. He was a He was a running back on one of the last Long Beach State football teams. That's Ron Settles he's talking about. The Long Beach back ran for 663 yards his junior season. As we sit here, I get chills just thinking about it. You know, Ron had been driving through Signal Hill, California. 21-year-old Ron Settles was a star running back for California State University, Long Beach, the fifth leading rusher in the school's history. But those dreams were never to be realized. The police pulled him over, and an hour later, he was um, found in his jail cell hanging from um, uh, a bed a bed sheet that the other uh, people who were incarcerated said it wasn't a bed sheet in his room, so how did it get there? So it was one of those things that you learned from me as a 21-year-old cat to, to know that, you know, someone was murdered, basically, at the hands of the police. Hodges may have grown up in the movement, but now he truly saw what he was fighting for and against. Flash forward to the early 90s, and here's Hodges sharing a locker room with the biggest cash cow the NBA had ever seen, Michael Jordan. And all Hodges could think about was how to use that fame so close and yet so far away to help his community. Craig Hodges was looking at the United States in 1991 and he saw a country that looked like a wrecking ball had been taken to black and urban areas. I mean, 1991, uh, that was during uh, George H.W. Bush recession, unemployment numbers that were catastrophic um, in urban areas, catastrophic levels of, um, of violence. And it was, it was a terrible situation. How would you feel if you were struggling to get the word out and the dude sitting 10 feet away from you in the locker room is the most famous man on planet Earth? Uh, for me, prior to Michael signing the, the life basically deal with Nike, we were standing in the back when he was getting ready to sign the deal. And I said, brother, every city in America would give Michael Jordan a factory for a dollar. We could get the means of production from Asia and the rubber from Africa and Brazil and produce here, and that we could hire people. We have a ready-made workforce at that time that was standing on the, on the corner selling crack. 
At the time, there was a lot of publicity about kids killing other kids for Nike shoes. Craig was also concerned about sweatshop conditions that Nike shoes were made in. And uh, Michael Jordan wanted nothing to do with that conversation, even though he certainly had the power to shift Nike any way in which he wanted to. Michael realizes things and, and, and the politics of things better than anybody because he's closer to those who make the decisions than any of us were. So when positions would come up like Republican by Jim Shoes, and I'd just laugh and say, come on, brother, you know better than that. It's one of those things also where the larger thing that people often miss is that the power behind the power, you know, the power behind Michael Jordan, those different entities that have an interest in how, how he does things. And I think oftentimes that, that plays a role in the public persona and the public position that's taken. Sports leagues tend to take on the persona of their superstars. If the NBA had gone through decades of social activism in the 60s and 70s, in the 80s and 90s, it was now obsessed with keeping it clean and getting very rich. When Craig looked around, he didn't find others willing to march with him in the league or in the country. All those hippies, the folks who had once been out on the streets protesting to stop a war and fight for the rights of others, well, they'd become yuppies, and yuppies voted Republican. Ronald Reagan, three electoral votes. So up to this hour, it is a clean sweep of every state so far for President Reagan with three electoral The only thing boomers were protesting now was how much extra their BMW's custom leather seats cost. And this was the audience that the NBA so richly coveted, one that wasn't buying what Hodges was selling. He was on his own. Well, first of all, the money is exploding in the NBA. The growth of things like cable television, uh, sneaker contracts. I mean, it, it changes the entire landscape of the league. Nevertheless, Craig Hodges was determined to press his political power, even with the most powerful man in the world. And no, I'm not talking about Michael Jordan this time. Uh, we're here because the Chicago Bulls uh, answered all her critics last year, uh, compiling the best regular season record in their history and then crushing all the opposition. That, that day is probably one of the greatest days of my life, man, and as far as knowing that I felt like on that day I was doing what I was blessed to come from my mom to do. In October of 1991, Craig Hodges joined his Bulls teammates at the White House, the guest of President George H.W. Bush. They were there to celebrate winning a ring. But Craig Hodges, he was there to press for change. You know, to be able to stand in front of the, the most power, possibly the most powerful leader on earth and bring the grievances of those who can't come who would love to be here and talk to you, but I'm getting a chance to be here and talk to you. I mean, from my perspective, what Craig Hodges did at the Bush White House, the H.W. Bush White House, was heroic. I mean, he showed up with a letter that he wrote decrying racism in the United States, decrying the war in Iraq, and uh, he handed it to a Bush official and asked that it go to George H.W. Bush. My mom went to the to the march on Washington in 63, her and her sisters. So for me, it was something that I, you know, was excited about them coming home as a little boy. So for me, when I got a chance to go and to actually think about the night before I went, I was playing ping pong and it hits me, man, 
how are you not how are you gonna go to the White House and not write a letter? And I'm like, man, I gotta write this letter because my mom would have wrote it, you know. So sat down and wrote it, and and basically it was just you know asking the president to consider the issues of poor people, people of color, people who are disenfranchised. It wasn't it wasn't disrespectful. He also showed up at the White House wearing a daishiki in a context where the players who were there were wearing suits and ties. And then he even took some shots at an outdoor court at the White House. Craig was one of the NBA's best shooters, and he was about to put on a show. Then he swished one after the other, wearing a daishiki as the president looked on. I mean, that's pretty cool. President Bush was cool to me. His son was cool. He thought I was, I think his son thought I was Ethiopian or something because I had on my garments. He was talking to me real slow, like I couldn't understand English or something. I thought, oh, brother, I'm good. I'm from the Heights. George Herbert Walker Bush may have acted cool to Craig in the moment, but he was a man with a complicated history when it came to race. When Reagan's VP was running for president in 1988, he picked up the Gipper's racial dog whistle and turned it into a bullhorn with the Willie Horton ad, insinuating that Michael Dukakis was going to let criminals, black criminals, loose on American streets. One was Willie Horton, who murdered a boy in a robbery, stabbing him 19 times. Despite a life sentence, Horton received 10 weekend passes from prison. And a year after he got that letter from Craig Hodges at the White House, Bush's America was in the midst of a racial reckoning. The Rodney King beating had torn the nation apart. And the Rodney King verdict was about to set the country ablaze. Jury in the Rodney King case has delivered its verdict, and not one of the four police officers seen on videotape beating Mr. King a year ago is guilty of using excessive force. They've all been found not guilty. L.A. exploded into riots in the wake of the not guilty verdicts. And a few weeks later, Craig Hodges exploded as well. After a daytime practice during the NBA Finals, he sounded off on Michael Jordan telling the story of how Jordan had refused to publicly weigh in on Rodney King. I can understand that, Hodges said, but at the same time, that's a bailout situation because you are bailing out when some heat is coming on you. We can't bail anymore. This is a war. How much money did we make here last night? How many lives will it change? The New York Times ran the quotes and all hell broke loose. Hodges had come for the King and it sure felt like he missed. Despite winning two championships with the Bulls, he was suddenly toxic. It shouldn't come as a surprise, really. The country was still reeling from the riots. Sure, we'd had racially motivated riots before in 1968 and 69, and also 1970, 71, 72, 73, 77, 78, 80, 89, and 91. But this one was different. This was a TV event, a primetime soap opera pitting whites against blacks and law and order against the systemically oppressed. And Craig Hodges had just picked the losing team. At season's end, his contract wasn't renewed, and no other team in the entire NBA took a chance on him. His own agent even dropped him, leaving him to fend for himself. All right. I'm an unrestricted free agent at the height of my earning potential. I couldn't get an agent to represent me. My union told me that I needed to find an agent that a team owed a favor so they would know that I'm not a bad guy. My response is, what did I do was wrong? 
I've never been fined. I stood righteous on every contract that was put in front of me. I never held out. What was, what did I do that was wrong? For years on the team bus, on the road, in hotel rooms and locker rooms, players had told Craig that they supported him, that they understood why he was doing what he was doing. But when the shit hit the fan, he was alone. And the league wasn't done driving out players. There was still one more man destined to take a stand and meet the same fate. So when I see how his career was shortened because of a righteous position of what is you know, what his religion teaches him to do when he sees injustice. How can you not give kudos to that brother for standing on his principles, man? We'll get into that after the break. In the 1970s, John Todd burst onto the evangelical scene with a shocking tale. He claimed to be a former witch involved in a then unheard of secret organization called the Illuminati and urged Christians to prepare for a violent world takeover. First of all, the number one weapon in everybody's home should be a 12-gauge pump shotgun. Hear the amazing story of one of the originators of the modern-day conspiracy theory. From Magnificent Noise and Sony Music Entertainment, this is Cover Up, The Conspiracy Tapes. In 1992, a new president from a new generation would take office, promising real change. And some smooth licks on the old sacks. Young, relatable, dare I say it, cool in a Denny's all-day breakfast kind of way. Felt like America was finally turning the corner. Sure, Bill Clinton may have had a fresh face and the backing of a different political party, but by and large, he was playing from the same textbook as Reagan and Bush. And rule number one was straddle those racial fault lines. Finally, let's stand up for what's always been best about the Rainbow Coalition, which is people coming together across racial lines. The first blatant example of this was in 1992, as Bill Clinton was fighting tooth and nail to win the presidency. By June of that year, he had fallen behind the incumbent Bush and outsider Ross Perot. He needed something, anything, to spark his flailing campaign, to prove that he wasn't, you know, your typical kumbaya dem. You had a a rap singer here last night named Sister Soldier. I defend her right to express herself through music. And so, when Jesse Jackson, the outspoken civil rights activist, invited a controversial rapper named Sister Soldier to a conference, Clinton saw his opportunity. But her comments before and after Los Angeles were filled with a kind of hatred that you do not honor today and tonight. Here was a Democrat unafraid to go after his black base. That's right, somehow that was construed as a positive. And those Reagan Democrats ate it up. Clinton soon took the lead and eventually the White House. This Democratic administration was going to be different. They were going to be tough on crime. They're often the kinds of kids that are called super predators. No conscience, no empathy. Skeptical of government, 
The era of big government is over. This sounds familiar, almost Republican. That's because it was. This strategy was called triangulation, and it's defined by taking your opponent's positions before they can. It's an attempt to make all people happy at all times, and his whole party followed suit. So I hope this crime bill, when it passes, the Biden-Hatch crime bill, as it becomes law, God willing, I hope that we will have ended once and for all this notion that is a hangover from the 60s, that somehow Democrats are weak on crime and Democratic presidents are weak on crime and Republicans are tough on crime. Democrats had basically become Republicans and Republicans had become something completely different. An alliance of Christian evangelicals, multinational conglomerates and straight up racist white nationalists and a few crackpots thrown in for good measure. It was against this backdrop that another NBA player would step up and take a stand, even if no one noticed at first. Uh, Mahmoud Abdul-Raouf is from Gulfport, Mississippi, um, which is a very rural southern area, very tough to grow up black in Gulfport, Mississippi. Uh, it's even tougher if you have Tourette's syndrome, which uh, Mahmoud Abdul-Raouf had. And he, so he was born Chris Jackson, not tall, not very muscular, and yet somehow decides that he's going to be a generationally great basketball player. I don't know where he got the moxie to think that was going to happen. I think it, part of it was from his, um, you know, from the, the uh, Tourette's. It was one of those things that it made him more concentrated and focused and even harder. You know, I've, I've spoken with him and he was telling me how hard it was for him just to get to school in the morning where he would have to retie his shoe 10 or 12 times. The door had to be turned the same way before he could leave where he had to start the whole process over. He would go to the court and he said, man, Hodge, I thought I was gonna kill myself with this game, man. He said, I would have to shoot the ball through the hoop the same way 10 times in a row before I left. And if it didn't bounce on the court the same way, I had to start all over again. You know, so he said, I thought I was gonna die shooting the basketball. And sure enough, he goes to LSU and has simply one of the greatest freshman seasons in the history of college basketball, scoring 55 points with nine three-pointers against Ole Miss. And then his sophomore year, he's the best player on a team that includes a young freshman named Shaquille O'Neal. And again, this is a player who's ahead of his time. I mean, he's kind of like Steph Curry before Steph Curry. He can shoot from anywhere on the court. He, his range is limitless. Um, Chris Jackson becomes a lottery pick for the Denver Nuggets. But Jackson grows depressed in Denver. He puts on weight. He's searching for something. And that something soon became Islam. Like Kareem Abdul-Jabbar before him, Jackson finds purpose in the religion of peace. He becomes Mahmoud Abdul-Raouf. But it's more than just a religious conversion for him. It's also a political conversion. He starts reading people like Noam Chomsky, Arundhati Roy. He starts to develop a serious critique of U.S. imperialism. And he develops this through books and on his own. So once again, you have somebody who doesn't have an amen chorus in the streets. You don't have a mass movement that's ready to embrace Mahmoud Abdul-Raouf. He's coming to these conclusions entirely on his own. 
By the year 1996, Rauf makes a private decision. He's going to stay in the locker room for the national anthem. And at first, no one notices. But when a reporter catches up with him, he explains why he's doing this. And he says, look, it's just not something I'm comfortable doing. And the reporter says to him, but don't you realize that that flag is a symbol of freedom and democracy uh, throughout the world? And Rauf answers, well, it may be a symbol of freedom and democracy to some, but it's a symbol of oppression and tyranny to others. Now, when he said this in the mid-1990s, I mean, it was like the sporting shit hit the fan. I mean, ESPN was like, Rauf spits on the flag, booyah, it. And it was just these constant running stories about everything that Mahmoud Abdul Rauf was doing wrong. Uh, and, and, his, and, and he also got thrown under the bus by a fellow Muslim player, the great Akeem Olajuwon, who made his own statement that Muslims should be patriotic to the country in which they live. And so this was something that left Mahmoud Abdul Rauf really alone on the island. And from there, things just got worse. Fans are booing him both at home and away. Uh, some radio DJ shock jocks in Denver go to a mosque and play uh, the national anthem at huge volumes while people are trying to pray. It's entirely framed in the media as, well, he's a Muslim now and therefore he doesn't respect the flag. When, as he said to me once, the irony was that I was reading a Jewish guy, Noam Chomsky, and that's what really inspired me to not go out there. So it's not like I was reading Islamic scholars. I was reading Noam Chomsky, and that's why I didn't want to celebrate the flag. Eventually, the pressure builds, and Rauf makes a deal. He'll go out for the anthem, but simply bow his head in prayer, much like another protester would do a few decades later. Rauf thought he had found a solution, a way to not disrespect others while taking a stand. And there's a famous photo of a profile of Rauf praying into his hands uh, while his teammates stand at attention for the national anthem. And that photo has become quite iconic, especially in recent years with Colin Kaepernick and other athletes using that anthem space to protest. Despite being the team's leading scorer for the year, he's traded to the Sacramento Kings. And but for a brief stop in Vancouver, soon found himself completely out of the league. And he actually leads the NBA in points per minute his last year. And he doesn't get another contract. Even though he's still at the height of his powers, even though he's a brilliant shooter. At just 29 years old, one of the best shooters on planet Earth was out of the league. No career-ending injuries, just a quiet protest that turned into a firestorm. I think it's fascinating the way the player profiles of him and Craig Hodges are actually quite similar. Um, in terms of like what they did so exceptionally well wasn't necessarily valued by the NBA, and that made them easier to dispose of. Rauf's career was over, but his troubles were just beginning. He received death threats, and a sign near his home was spray-painted with the letters KKK, the same home that would be mysteriously burned to the ground a few years later. Just like all those years ago, when Bill Russell was terrorized off the court, Rauf's stand had real-world consequences. And once again, it, it was injustice in, in right in our face. You know, if it's a public humiliation, you know, with somebody that has such a bright future. So I always speak of him and then me, because to me, 
you know, I might have timeline might have been me first, but the injustice of what his career could have been to me could have been one of the top scorers ever in the game had he had a chance to do what he was capable of doing because to this day nobody did it the way he did it it would take years for these two iconoclasts to meet craig and mahmoud but when they did the connection was instantaneous a brotherhood of two in a club that no one else would probably ever want to join I saw him from across the gym and we saw each other, man. And it was like, it was, it was all, it was like a reunion, man, of spirits more than anything. So we've been cool ever since. And with that meeting, a moment had passed and the NBA's reckoning with racial justice would have to wait for another generation. The shooting death of a black youth in Florida sent out new shockwaves today. They reverberated from protesters to police as the public outrage grew along with demands for action. The truth is our lives aren't usually determined by one other person or a conspiracy or some magical singular event. We're pushed, pulled, shaped, and sometimes even crushed by big forces, collisions, accidents, and changes. That's what happened to basketball players in the 80s. And it's happening to basketball players today. LeBron James tweeted a team photo of the Miami Heat wearing hoodies to pay tribute to Martin, who was wearing a hoodie when he was killed. But once again, players are using their voices to fight back. You can't disconnect players from the world that shapes them. And the players, in turn, can shape the world. The system is broken. The problems are not new. The violence is not new. And the racial divide definitely is not new. But the urgency to create change is at an all-time high. Marcus Smart knows the tenacious guard for the Boston Celtics stood shoulder to shoulder with his fellow players in 2020 after a police shooting took the life of another young black man. We want you to know that we won't be silent. Enough is enough. We're tired of our loved ones, our brothers, our, our fathers, our sons being killed for nonsense, for nothing at all. But there are still reminders of how little this country has actually changed. Just a few years ago, Smart was leaving the arena after a Celtics home game when he saw a woman and her young son crossing a street as the light changed. Cars were heading right for them, so he yelled out to warn her. And she turned. But instead of saying thanks or asking for an autograph, she called them the N-word, all while wearing a Boston Celtics jersey. But while Bill Russell had to suffer insults alone, today Marcus Smart does not. Over the last 40 years, the NBA has changed in ways once unimaginable, from punitive to protective and proactive, from chasing white cash to embracing black voices. It's made mistakes, plenty of them, but the NBA has managed to learn from those mistakes from its failures, and yes, even from its tragedies. Now, more than ever, it's time to see if America can do the same. That's coming up next episode on Death at the Wing.
Death at the Wing is a hyper object and three uncanny four production. I'm your host and executive producer, Adam McKay. Jody Avergan is our executive producer and story editor. Raghu Manavalan is our senior producer. Brian Steele is our producer. We got booking help from Catherine Shoemaker. Our assistant producer is Shane McKeon. Archival research from Jason Helig. Fact-checking from Will Tavlin. We got legal help from Allison Sherry. Nuna Sharafuddin is our production manager. Very special thanks to Stacey Roberts-Steele. This show is mixed and sound designed by Joanna Catcher at Nice Manners. Music composition by Beacon Street. Our executive producers are Harry Nelson at HyperObject and Laura Mayer at 3 Uncanny 4. If you like this series, head over to Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Stitcher, or wherever you get your podcasts and follow the show. And make sure to leave a rating and review. It really helps us and it helps others discover the show. If you want to get in touch with any questions or comments about the show, send us an email. We'll be doing a bonus episode at the end of the series talking about more stories and answering your questions. Our email address is datw at hyperobjectindustries.com. That's datw for death at the wing at hyperobjectindustries, all one word, dot com. You can also find me on Twitter at Ghost Panther, or you can reach us by sending a letter through the estate of George Mikan. Thanks again for listening. We'll be back soon with more Death at the Wing.